Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is episode 251. And this week's episode is based on a couple of stupid things I said last week when I was discussing I Love Lucy. I misspoke in a couple of places and got some names wrong. I wanted to say Bela Lugosi, who is actually Dracula, and I said Lon Chaney, who is also in a lot of horror movies, but not that one. And also I said uh, Herbert Hoover instead of J. Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the FBI at the time. And it got me thinking because, you know, you do these commentaries and you make mistakes. And it reminds me of being on the air live, especially when you're doing like a three-hour disc jockey show or a three-hour play-by-play of a baseball game, uh, you're going to make mistakes. And so that's what this episode is about. Some broadcasting faux pas and mistakes, spoonerisms, etc. Some by me and some by others that you might find amusing. And some are actually just, you know, bad judgment. <laughs> cases. But uh, that's what we'll be talking about. And in many cases, uh, the people look like idiots when they say these things. It's happened to me. It happened to me last week. So that's what we're going to talk about broadcasting faux pas this week on Hollywood and Levine. Okay, so first I want to go back to my DJ days in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, I remember one time I was on the air at 10Q in Los Angeles, and I was doing all these uh, Ed Sullivan impressions. I got on an Ed Sullivan jag. I'll try for you youngsters. I'll tell that kind of thing. So I was doing uh, Ed Sullivan, and um, it kind of became a running bit throughout the whole show. Unbeknownst to me, Ed Sullivan had died that evening. (laughs) And so all of these Ed Sullivan references, and there must have been 15 of them, uh, all made me sound like a complete idiot. When I was on... Cayman in San Bernardino, the rock of the Inland Empire, as we used to call it. I would also have to do my own news. They couldn't afford newsmen. And so what you would do normally is when it was time for news, you know, you put on your last record and you ran into the newsroom and all of the news was on this teletype machine that would continue to crank out more stories. And usually, like every 15 minutes, they would have summaries. So you would rip off the summary and just grab it and sit down and read. We used to call it rip and read because we didn't proofread it at all. So then this was during the era of the Vietnam War and all of these Nam pens and all of these long Cambodian names and things like that, which 
Like every disc jockey just just mangled left and right. Uh, and and I certainly did my share of that. Again, you know, somebody's listening, you're going, this, this guy's an idiot. But my favorite Rip and Reed story also comes from Cayman in San Bernardino. There was a disc jockey named Russ O'Hara. And Russ later went on to prominence working in Los Angeles. He's still around. I think he's even on the air in Palm Springs. But he had been doing a rip and read and noticed that the president of Bolivia died. And it was a very long name, one that, again, he just had no idea how to pronounce. So he very deftly got around it by saying pretty much this. The president of Bolivia has died. His name is being withheld until they notify his immediate family. (laughs) Very smooth. I will say this. I never swore on the radio. Every couple of times I came close, I never swore on the radio. But this this is a story of somebody who did. I'm not going to say his name. This is back again in 1974, and I'm at a radio station in San Diego called KSEA. And it was an AM-FM station. The AM was KSON and was a country station. And at the time, we were located in a big shopping mall in the Grossmont Center. And we were on one side of the loading dock, and Quezon was on the other so in the middle of the night, and we had an intercom between the two stations, and in the middle of the night, our guy was talking to the all-night guy of Quezon. And our guy put on a long record, you know, like Nights in White Satin or something like that at the time. And he accidentally left his mic on. Now, three o'clock in the morning and he's talking to the morning man at Quezon and he's saying um and you know our uh our receptionist Danielle and the guy goes yeah which one is Danielle oh she's like really tall and brunette and very sweet and like oh yeah yeah I remember her and he's going man I would love to fuck her Oh, my God, the things I would do to her, which he then described in graphic detail. And all this is going out on the air. Well, Danielle happened to be in a sorority. And they were studying for finals. So she and her sorority sisters were up listening to this. And uh, so, again, this this jockey is recounting all of the lewd things that he would do with Danielle and the uh, hotline rings. And he's like, whoa, what's this? And he picks up the phone and it's like, hi, this is Danielle. (laughs) What are you doing? And he realized that uh, he was on the air live he happened to live in the same apartment complex as me. And at 6.05 in the morning, there's like a loud banging on my door and I have to wake up. 
And he goes, oh, my God, I just so fucked up. And he explained to me what happened. What do I do? And I said, "Um, well, (laughs) um, I, I would try to get ahead of this because when Danielle comes in in the morning, all hell is going to break loose. Yeah, he ended up uh, losing his job, and he did not get anywhere with Danielle. Um, sometimes you get in trouble, and it's not your fault. And this happened to me when I was a disc jockey at KYA in San Francisco. Again, 1974. you Getting the idea here, all of these radio stations are 1974. I didn't last very long at most of these radio stations. Well, at KYA, I was doing 10 to 2 at night. And I got a call at like 4.30 in the morning. And I had been asleep like an hour and a half. And it was the morning man of the station, whose name I'm not going to say, but he said, oh, man, I'm really sick. I, I, can't, I can't go on. You know, can you do my show this morning? Why are you calling me? Well, because you live in town. You know, you're like 10 minutes away from the station. Okay, I'll, I'll do the morning show for you. So I go down and I do the morning show. And since it's the morning show... And real nice exposure for me, exposure I usually don't get when I'm broadcasting at 1 o'clock in the morning. I'm cooking and I'm doing funny bits and I'm reprising funny bits I did two nights before, figuring that nobody heard them and I was cooking. So it turns out this morning man was not sick that morning. But there was a luncheon by like the San Francisco Broadcasters Association that was honoring him that day. And he just wanted to get a good night's sleep and, you know, be be awake and fresh for this luncheon. So uh, I don't hear about this till later. So he goes to the luncheon and one of the other members uh, goes to introduce him and says, you know, I want to play some examples of how funny and how creative he is. And I've been listening and taping for like the last three weeks and really coming up with nothing. But finally, I got a really good day, and this gives you a chance to hear just how funny this guy can be. And he played a tape of that morning and me doing the broadcast. This morning, man, did not talk to me for the next month. Again, as if it were my fault. Yeah, so, you know, no good deed. When I was an engineer... At KABC, this was a few years before this, they had a kind of a, a revolving door of hosts on Sunday afternoon. They thought, well, it'd be kind of fun to have like some celebrity, some like TV movie celebrity be a talk show host 
for like two, three hours a week. And so they were kind of doing on-air auditions of people hoping to find one that would stick. And one finally did stick was Lloyd Thaxton, just for you trivia buffs. We had a guy in there, and uh, again, I don't want to say his name because I don't want to embarrass him. He's no longer with us. But he was a major star on one of those 1950s private eye cop shows. And he's on the air, and, and I'm sensing this guy is not very bright. It's like the way he's answering questions and the way he's reading commercial copy and going, ah, this is not the sharpest tool in the shed. So he has to read a live commercial for a car dealership. It's in the San Fernando Valley. It's on Magnolia Boulevard. And he stumbles through the spot, and finally he gets towards the end, and he goes, so get on down to Krellman Chevrolet at 16221 Mongoloid Boulevard. Well, usually, you know, as the engineer, you try to have some decorum. I fell on the floor laughing. I just couldn't believe <laughs> Mongoloid Boulevard. <laughs> Later, I became a talk show host at the KABC. Crowman uh, Motors was no longer sponsoring. But uh, I learned a very important lesson, and this was kind of a faux pas really um, just judgment on my part. I got Sid Caesar to be a guest on my show. And he agreed to come down to the station and do an hour with me live. And this was Saturday nights. And on Saturday nights, you don't get a lot of sponsors, especially this was early in the year, like January, February. And, you know, most sponsors will advertise during the holiday season, Christmas. But, you know, once you get to January, people are not spending money anymore, so people are not advertising anymore. So I've got like maybe one or two ads for the entire hour, but I don't care because I have Sid Caesar, you know, the you know, great host of your show of shows, one of the funniest men alive. And I kind of got a sense we were in trouble when... He shows up at the station. He's really kind of surly. And my wife says, you know, when you were on, um, I was really little, but my dad would wake me up and have me come and watch the show because you're so funny. And he goes, ah, you should have been in bed. Hmm. This is not a good sign. So we get him on the air and he is the angriest guy you have ever heard. I later learned that he was going through like a bad drinking period. But people would call and say, hey, I loved you on your show of shows. Ah, screw you. Or so what do you think of Saturday Night Live? I hate Saturday Night Live. Ah, They don't know what they're doing. Well, after he started yelling at like two or three of my callers, the phones went dead. I mean, who's going to call and (laughs) have themselves uh, belittled on the radio by this guy? So now it's 810, and I've got 50 more minutes 
with this guy. And I'm, you know, asking him questions about this and that, and he's just beating the living shit out of me. And it was a horrible hour of radio. And I, of course, look like an idiot because this guy is just pounding me to pulp. So the next morning, uh, I call a friend of mine who is a very, very big talk show host in San Francisco. People in the Bay Area will know who I'm talking about when I say Ron Owen from KGO. So I call Ron and and I'm whining about how terrible he was and how mean to me he was, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a pause on the phone and Ron says, mm, it's your fault. I said, my fault? How, how could it be my fault? He said, it's your show. You need to have enough material so that if you have a bad guest after five minutes you go, okay, well, our guest has been Sid Caesar. Sid, thanks very much. We'll be right back right after this. And then you have enough stories or enough topics or enough things to talk about that you can fill, but you don't let a bad guest ruin your show for an hour. And I'm going, yeah, but it's Sid Caesar. It's the great Sid Caesar. He's got all these Emmys and everything. And Ron's like, fuck that. The guy's a bad guest. Get him off the air. So that is a lesson that I learned and took with me. And believe me, it served me well. Because down through the years doing talk shows, all of a sudden, technical difficulties and the phones don't work. What do you do? You got to talk about something. So I was always like overprepared. So whenever I went on the air... I never had to rely on guests or phone calls. Now, let's go to my <laughs> my vaulted sportscasting play-by-play career doing baseball. My first year in Syracuse, I made a ton of airs. You know, all the usual forgetting how many outs there were, uh, having the wrong pitcher, on the mound. And oh, there's a great story about that. There was a sportscaster in the 40s and 50s, a very prominent sportscaster named Bill Stern. And Bill Stern, great voice, really good announcer, but apparently accuracy was not his strong suit. And when he would be calling a football game on the radio, and back then that was a big deal to have the Army-Navy game or, you know, Ohio State-Michigan on the radio, coast-to-coast, Notre Dame and USC. He would have the wrong player receiving the ball. And he would realize it as the player is going down the field. So what he would do to cover is he would say, you know, green streaking up the sidelines, uh... And he laterals the ball to Howard. He would always have the guys lateraling the ball to the actual receiver. Um, (laughs) And one time, he was doing a race. I think it was the Kentucky Derby. And he screwed up and had the wrong winner. 
And somebody in the paper had a great line saying, you can't lateral a horse. My other favorite uh, football on the radio faux pas was a longtime guy named Ozzie Wismer. And this was his call once. And he's got the ball, and he's at the 30, at the 40-yard line, the 50, the 60, the 70-yard line. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I would have uh, wrong players. You know, that, that would happen from time to time. And my favorite story there is Harry Carey, who was a great, iconic character of baseball. God, do I miss Harry Carey. And in his later years, uh, Harry was losing it a little bit. And I was broadcasting for the San Diego Padres. We were in Chicago. And what I would do oftentimes when it wasn't my inning to do the play-by-play, it was my partner's inning, I had a transistor radio with an earpiece and I would listen to the other broadcast. You know, oftentimes you pick up uh, little tips and things like that uh, that I didn't know so that I could go, uh, you know, uh, George Bell uh, is using a 31-ounce bat now instead of a 32-ounce bat. And, you know, my partner would go, wow, how did he learn that? Well, the other announcer just said it five minutes ago. But um, the Chicago Cubs at the time had a center fielder named Brian McRae. And I'm listening to Harry Carey. There's a fly ball to center field. Carey goes, there's a fly ball to center field, and Carmen McRae makes the catch. Well, I was on the floor with that one. I was laughing so hard it actually bled onto the air uh, from my partner's uh, (laughs) microphone, and uh, my partner was not too happy with me (laughs) as a result of that. Uh, When I was with the Tidewater Tides. We had a great general manager, guy who ran the team named Dave Rosenfield. Dave Rosenfield was tough, you know, and he would listen to these broadcasts and we'd come back after a road trip and he would critique us. And his critiques were usually very good. But like I said, um, he was tough. You did not want to make a mistake because Dave was always listening. Now, we were loaded with commercials on this broadcast. So if an inning ended and you didn't get out and break for commercial as quick as you possibly could, you were going to miss the first two or three pitches of the next half inning. So routinely, there would be the last out, and you would go and, uh, you know, McCray makes the catch, and that'll do it. After three, Indians won, Chiefs nothing, or Tides nothing. So that's what I was doing. We were in Indianapolis, and there was no score. And it was like the third inning. And there's a runner at first, and there's two outs, and it's no balls and two strikes. And my call is, here's the pitch, swung on a miss, strike three. 
That'll do it. Let's go to the fourth inning. Still no score. Bam, and I'm out. And then I see they haven't left the field. And I see the runner at first base go down to second. And I realize, oh, shit, a balk had been called. The pitch didn't count. So now there's a runner at second, and the inning is still going, and we're in commercial. And I'm thinking, okay, just strike out, and no one will know the difference. Next pitch, he hits a home run. Again, we're in commercial break. The next guy makes an out, and as we come back, the players are leaving the field. So now I've got like two minutes to fill, and I have to say, well, uh, while we were away, (laughs) turns out there was a balk, and (laughs) the funniest thing, the guy hits a home run. (laughs) That was the final score. It was two to nothing. We also on the postgame show have highlights of the plays of the day. There's no other play other than the home run, which I didn't call. And, uh, yeah, I heard about it. (laughs) Believe me, I heard about it. Interestingly, when I was doing the Orioles a few years later, and Chuck Thompson, the great Hall of Fame Chuck Thompson, was doing the play-by-play with me, and we were in Kansas City. And wouldn't you know, when he was on the air, the exact same thing happened. Exactly. A balk, in-commercial, home run. Well, I was mortified when it happened to me. When it came back, Chuck just said, oh, while we were away, it turned out there was a balk and uh, George Brett hit a home run and the score is now um, 3-1 to one, Kansas City. So uh, moving on to the bottom of the and like, wow. At that was smooth. You know, it's Chuck Thompson. No one's going to hate Chuck Thompson, but they sure are going to hate me. Yeah, I had uh, pitchers throwing up in the bullpen. I once had a player at second base with his hands on his fists. Um, <laughs> I once had a horrible home run call. This is maybe the worst home run call ever. This was when I was in Syracuse, and it was early in my broadcast career there. And in Rochester, there were double-deck billboards, and the billboards were all white. And the ground rules were, if a ball hit above the first billboard, then it was a home run. But if the ball hit the lower billboard and carry him back onto the field, then it was still in play. But you wouldn't know because a batter would hit a ball to deep left field and it would be a white ball against two white signs and it would bounce off at some point. You had no idea whether it was a home run or or, or it was still in play. So there's a ball going out to left field and the left fielder like leaps up to try to catch it and uh and i go uh it's it's uh caught and my partner dan horde like waves his head no no it's not and i go oh no check that uh and and dan does the symbol for a home run 
which is you twirl your finger around. At that time, like I said, I'd only been doing this for like two, three weeks. I didn't know the sign for home run. So I said, wait, no, he didn't catch it. It's a double. It's in play. And Dan's shaking his head no again. I was like, wait, no, it's not a double. It's not an out. It's a home run. That was my call. (laughs) Thank God I did that in the minors and not in the big leagues. There was a, uh, an announcer for a minor league team who was notorious for looking down at his notes and not watching the field. And there was a, a time his team was in Omaha, I believe, and he's looking down and says, there's a Nick Capra. Uh, see, in April, he hit 275, and what he doesn't see is that Capra is hit by a pitch. So Capra is trotting down to first, and this announcer is doing all these statistics, and, uh, you know, he had two doubles uh, against Rochester back on the third, and he looks up at the field, and he goes, oh, my God, there's a crazed madman running across the field with scissors. And then the other announcer had to go, uh, no, that's the Omaha trainer. Mm, that was a good one. Um, my worst home run call was in Baltimore, and it was like the second maybe second week we're in Milwaukee and I figure, okay, now I'm in the big league. So I have to have a home run call. So I think, Hmm, I came up with one as a long drive to deep left field. Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. So I thought, okay, that's kind of cute and original. I've never heard anyone else do that. I do that a couple of times. And again, now we're in Milwaukee and I'm new. This is like only my second week. And my partner that day was the great hall of famer, John Miller, who is a spectacular baseball announcer. Long fly ball to deep right field. I'm calling it. And I remember Robin Yount was in right field. He was the right fielder. And so my call was something to the effect of there's a long drive to deep right field. Yount goes back. Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis is off the top of the wall. And my partner, John, just plump, does like a face plant in front of him. Like, oh, my God, who did we hire? Well, that was the end of my home run call. I got in trouble in Baltimore when we had the Queen of England come and visit President Bush and the Queen of England were attending a game and they were like in the owner's box and unbeknownst to me they had the broadcast on so it's now like the third inning and so we were obviously talking a lot about the the queen and you know her visit blah 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 so i say listen in the bottom of the third inning um i have to read the sk out of town scoreboard and um if if queen elizabeth would like uh 
we would love to have her come on the broadcast and read the SK out-of-town scoreboard for us. Figure, okay, this was sort of amusing for the listeners. Well, she was a little confused by it. But apparently, President Bush was pissed. (laughs) Nothing like pissing off the President of the United States. Yeah, a message came to me, shut up, stop doing that. Um, So much for, uh, you know, you try things, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I would have to do uh, pre- and post-game interviews when I was doing baseball games. And I remember, again, this was with Baltimore, when Wally Joyner was with the Angels and was quite the sensation. And I finished up the interview. And what I wanted to say was, uh, I wish you great success with the Angels. What I said instead was, I wish you great sex with the Angels. (laughs) Then I moved to uh, Seattle. And as you know, if you listen to baseball on the radio, that like every half hour, the announcer has to pause for station identification. This is the Baltimore Orioles radio network. This is the Seattle Mariners radio network. Well, I don't have to tell you how many times that first couple of weeks in Seattle that I paused for station identification on the Baltimore Orioles radio network. It's just so ingrained in your head. There was a time when I was interviewing Bud Selig, then the commissioner of baseball. This was when I was doing Dodger Talk. And there was a a big promotion, something that they're still doing, called Stand Up to Cancer. So... I had him on the air and and I said to him, Here's here is Bud Selig, the commissioner of baseball, and a charity that he is very passionate about stand up for cancer. Yeah, that didn't work out too well either. And finally, finally my uh, my time in San Diego. I'm on TV and you usually come back from commercial showing people in the stands, showing kids, people eating hot dogs, whatever. And you come back on the air and basically your job is to provide captions anyway. So... Whatever I saw, I made a comment about. We were in Atlanta at the old Fulton County Stadium, and it was 1,000 degrees. It was August. And way out in left field somewhere, all alone in the entire section are two guys. One is African-American and one is white, and they're both wearing towels over their heads where they kind of look like sheiks. So that's what pops up on the screen, and I look at it and I go, oh, welcome back to Atlanta. Looks like the OPEC convention is in town. Well, there was an editorial in the San Diego Union Tribune uh, the next day blasting me for that. So, uh, you know, again, 
you know, you, you, you just try to be funny. Sometimes it works and other times it doesn't. And those are a number of my radio faux pas along with a few others from special guests. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, next week, the annual turkey show when I will be presenting some of the worst songs you have ever heard. You will laugh. You will cringe. Hopefully you will come back for that. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce and Jason Miller. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm on Twitter, at Ken Levine. I'm on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Have a great week. See you next week for the Turkey Show right here on Hollywood and Levine.